This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Peter Doyle, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, Cheryl. So I guess we should declare that we've known each other for some time. Yes, we have. I can't even remember yeah. where from. I can't because I worked with Sue, your wife, many, many years ago, but I didn't know you then. But I think I must have met you through Bernard Hart or did I meet you through Jane Palfreman when you were writing fiction? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, I remember your bookshop days at Bondi. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a bookseller for many, many years yeah. and then just worked in um, publishing briefly. Well, we do have a mutual friend and his name is Bernard and I'm sure he's going to be listening. Okay, so Peter is a writer of novels and non-fiction whose books include City of Shadows, Crooks Like Us and the novel The Big Whatever. He is the recipient of two Ned Kelly Awards for his fiction as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award. He has curated major exhibitions on pulp publishing and forensic material culture. He is an honorary associate professor of media at Macquarie University. He's here to talk to us about his latest book, Suburban Noir. He explores the police records of the late Brian Doyle, a 1960 detective, later assistant commissioner of police, and Peter's uncle. Because I don't think I know how you came to writing, so I want to go way back. And are you a Sydney boy through and through, or where did those formative years, where were they spent? Yeah, I am a Sydney person. I grew up... um in Maroubra, in Sydney. Yeah, that would have been a little bit rough back then in Maroubra. Maroubra was pretty mixed back then, actually. It, you know, it had uh, nice between-the-wars bungalows and sort of comfortable suburbia, but also huge migrant hostel and the old army buildings out there at Matraville and huge housing commission. Uh, it was good. And there was an yeah. Indigenous population too. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. Further out at La Perouse, um yeah, and still stand. is, yeah. Still there. So you grew up there. Uh, where did you go to high school? I went to high school at Darlinghurst, actually. Um, oh, that's a long way from Maroubra. Yeah, it was the school my father had gone to. Um, you know, Morris Brothers Darlinghurst it was an old inner city school which had produced quite a few minor politicians and minor criminals over the same over time. The years. Because yeah. again, that was a mix, wasn't it? More yeah. of, of kind of the seedy part of town. Yeah, well, you know, Darlinghurst in the nineteen sixties was just on the cusp between the old the old inner city culture, which had kind of fading away by then. Yeah. People younger folks from the you know, what before the war had been called the slums were being rehoused out in the new suburbs. So they're old they're old um, old ladies with sort of war era lipstick on and war era hairstyles who smoked a lot of cigarettes and hard drinking sort of wiry old Aussie blokes. 
and waves and waves of Maltese and Italian migrants there. And the sort of Bohemians moving in, the artists and, and all yeah, that yeah. new wave And there's thing. still an element of that there, isn't there? I think. Yeah. You know, particularly the artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's still... Uh, Darlinghurst was... Uh, you know, it was very cheap housing there, of course. So mm. um, that's always good for artists if they can live, if they can pay almost nothing <laughs> in rent. <laughs> until it gets discovered and then, you know, that's it, you've got to move on. Yeah. So in high school, did you think about, were you writing then? Did you think about story? Was it music? What was it that was going on? Yeah, I, in I terms had no, of... no notion that I would ever write. Um, back then, writing and bookmaking was something so remote and, you know, impossibly, oh, impossibly highly evolved, like, and the came, books came from a long way away. They came from America and England and France and, you know, I was a reader. So never, ever would have thought that I or anybody I knew could ever write a book. That just wasn't yeah, yeah, the way things were. It wasn't until decades later when I was, you know, in midlife doing a PhD, that uh, is a sort of task avoidance strategy. I started writing some short stories, uh, you know, to avoid yeah. having to do the real work on the research. Uh, okay, go back to high school. Who were you reading at the time? Do you uh, remember? Yeah, kind of. My stepmother gave me a bunch of crime novels. So, you know, Agatha Christie and yeah. Whodunits, uh, the Mickey Spillane novels, they were very big in the 50s and 60s, yeah. kind of terrific, but sort of brutal and... Oh, prejudiced and misogynist and homophobic and nasty hard boy. You know, he yes. was like a cranky white American who is the narrator. But, you know, they're, they're pretty good private eye stories too mm. and violent, which, you know, is a good thing for a teenager. They're like We mm. like our violence. <laughs> uh, I read those. And, of course, then moving into the, the books that everybody read, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, uh Oh, I don't, gee, actually, Cheryl, I'm just suddenly at a loss to what... No, but that's books fine. were important among... Yeah, I'm just... I mean, the reason why I'm asking you is just the influence on your writing now. What do you think were the ma major influences on your work today? Yeah. Well, then later on in my 20s, you know, I read the things that everybody read back in... That was then the 1970s. But um, Raymond Chandler, when I, when yeah. I read, I collected, you know, somebody gave me, I think my brother from... A, you know, birthday gave me a collected Raymond Chandler novels and in one in one volume, and I just drank them up. Um, yeah. I was sort of sick in bed for a week with a virus or something, and uh, and then Dashiell Hammett, the American kind mm -hmm. of so-called hard-boiled yeah. and private eye uh, mm. novelists of between the wars and after the war, and uh, yeah, uh, Patricia Highsmith was an early one. Once I started reading crime, people directed me to. Isn't it interesting how you're soaking all of that up and then it comes out years later? Yeah, well, there was a kind of running joke. A couple of friends of mine and I had right back in the late 70s and early 80s to, to write an Australian private eye kind of story or an Australian detective story in that American style. It, I mean, in a way that was kind of like a joke idea, ridiculous idea, like how could you have that? Mm. 
And we even started, a few of us, just writing odd paragraphs here and there as a kind of pub joke, almost, you know. Because, you know, I remember back in my uh, book-selling days, and that, that, that came later, I don't know, 1989, 1990, I think. And I would never have thought about recommending Australian crime fiction no. to anyone to read. would never have crossed my mind back then. <laughs> yeah. It was always either American or English. It's hard to actually get one's head around how much things have changed there. It, yeah. it was like the music you heard on the radio, the rock and roll or whatever. It wasn't really about Australia either. No. And before that, in the 50s and 60s, it absolutely wasn't about Australia. I mean, some of the old country and western singers like Slim Dusty were. They actually did. Now looking back, you go, oh, that's pretty interesting. They did write about the places they knew, uh, mm. but and what was around them? Yeah, yeah what was around yeah. them? But but by and large, that's not what we yeah. encountered. One book that did completely blow my mind in the seventies was David Ireland's "The Unknown Industrial Prisoner," which right. was his book about it's kind of slightly surreal and social realist all at the same time about um, working in the oil refinery at Rhodes on the Parramatta River in Sydney. And it's sort of visionary and almost psychedelic, but it's so about Sydney. And then I read Shantic Bird, which is his first novel, and that's completely about Sydney. It's Castle Hill and Parramatta and Taronga Zoo. And I, in fact, I've just been rereading that recently, and it's it's so fresh and fantastic how he... It's like he's discovering yeah. Sydney. yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's what you do in a way, isn't it? But that's what I once I started writing. That's that was the freedom there. I was going, well, I can set these mm. kind of events in in Darlinghurst or Maroubra or mm. kind of move around in, what in the you fiction. Know. Yeah. Okay. So you went to university. Did you have an inkling of of what you wanted to do? Um, I wanted, you know, I, I went to university later in life in my late thirties after right. sort of. So spending, what did you do in between? Oh, played Worked. in bands and right. hung around, yep. wasted time in the yeah, inner yeah. city. You know, what do you sing or play the guitar? What do you do? I play guitar. Yeah, you play guitar. I, play, I still do that and yes. uh, yeah, play slide okay. guitar. Yeah. So what made you? What was the trigger to go back to or to go to university? Just one of those late thirties crises that uh, people have. Where they? Where am I? Where am I going? What? Am I doing with my life scenarios? Yeah, it's time to grow <laughs> up a little bit and actually get serious. Yeah, you just can't just right. ro- float along, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like a leaf in the stream and, uh, you know, little girl growing up and all that. So uh, so I went to university and I actually wanted to, uh, yeah, I did a, you know, one of those media degrees that people were doing in the 80s. And, mm. uh, you know, I was a really obsessive reader of crime fiction by then. And there was a kind of global sort of upswing, like crime had been very out of fashion, Mm. you know, really since the 50s. Mm. It was a kind of forgotten Mm. idiom. And there was a new wave of crime writing appearing. Uh, LA Confidential. Yeah. Who's the author? That's James Elroy. James Elroy. And he's part of that, exactly that phenomenon. He Uh, is, isn't he? Yeah, Yeah. I remember that. Good writer as well. Okay, so you're at university. What are you studying to be? Um, a filmmaker. I thought film ah, would be my okay. thing because I, you know, make oh, pictures. Oh, still storytelling, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. What I didn't realise about filmmaking is that you need you to You need organize, a lot of money. <laughs> you need a ton of money and a yes. ton of people and you've yes. got to whip them all into shape and mm. get that money. So, you know, to even make a cheap film costs huge amounts of money. Of money. Yeah. Whereas to write a manuscript really only takes time. 
you know, and actually to publish a book, it doesn't take millions of dollars to publish Mm. a book. Don't tell the government that, (laughs) because they'll pay writers even less. (laughs) You probably know this, but I read somewhere that the uh, average salary for a writer these days is $15,000 a year. That much? (laughs) (laughs) Someone's doing well. It's woeful, isn't it? So, yeah, so you're thinking being a filmmaker. Yeah, but I didn't really, you know, I wrote some scripts and I started putting them around and trying to get some arts funding and things, and I was... I want to talk about writing scripts. Yeah. So was that your first foray into writing, it do was, you think? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. Such a different medium, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. But, you know, as you say, it is still narrative and storytelling, but it's more constrained than you might imagine. Like, we watch a film or a TV show that we like, and yeah. it just seems... The story just seems to be telling itself and unfolding, and then... When you write, actually try to write a script, there's so many things have to be thought about, have to be nailed down, that in fact, that feeling of freedom or just openness, it's not there at all in the writing. So it's a very, very um, strict and forbidding form to work in, actually. We had recently um, a script writer in here um, with years and years of experience who'd just taken his hand to fiction, Roger Simpson, who'd written the Halifax series. And he said to me, which I thought was quite interesting, he said the difference he's found between script writing and long form, or fiction if you like, is that you can get into people's heads. You can get into people's heads in the long form fiction. Yeah, you Mm. can. And everything on film has got to be shown. It's got to be enacted. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I thought that was really interesting, actually. You've got to put it all there, (laughs) visually. Mm. So uh, did anything happen with your filmmaking career? Uh, Yeah, what happened was nothing happened. Oh, good. (laughs) With with a daughter sort of getting into late primary school and I saw the kind of other wannabes, you know, people, talented people with their scripts in Sydney and there was a bit of a 10BA thing happening. There was a tax lurk in funding uh, films. So there were people out there trying, trying to get their ideas up and what I saw there was... A lot of work, sometimes for years. Yeah. Trying yeah, to get, yeah. and I went, I can't, af- <laughs> I can't yeah, do that. You don't I've have got that a, time. I, yeah. I, I, I need an income. So, yeah. So I kind of let go of that idea, and then yeah, just kept rolling along with. Um, I got an, my undergrad degree, and then I thought I'd do a, a PhD. Um, and I'll, and that's how the writing came about. Yeah, yeah, that really got me down behind a computer, and. Um, and was that pre-blue murder or post-blue murder? I, Right through that time, this was the. I started writing. I picked up that old idea of having a kind of detective story set in Sydney in the yeah. past, in the early nineties. I think it was about ninety two or ninety three, and uh, yeah. yeah. So Blue Murder was the mid nineties. I think that was a real turning point in Australian storytelling and crime. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It had everything. It had the brutality and the yeah. humour and the hum humanness. Uh, really well, uh, Ian David. I um, I think he's a genius. I think he's a it brilliant. It really writer. is genius, and that 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 TV series was just. I like the simplicity and the matter of factness of the storytelling. Yeah, it was yeah. so compelling. Yeah, and so Sydney, and so yeah, you know, accurate. I don't know. We couldn't see it for years. For some reason, it was banned for ages. I remember watching a copy that wasn't 
yeah. I'm not sure legal. But, yeah. but anyway, yeah, let's not go legs, there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> because it, there was some kind of legal issue in New South Wales, I think. Yeah, there were. There were still trials mm, that, um, right, yet yeah. to yet to play out completely. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's still talked about a lot. I, I see little bits of media drops that some of the uh, people involved in Graham Henry and so on, uh, gangsters and cops, and that they talk about it a lot. They get very exercised, and Roger Rogerson gets very exercised in his autobiography about it. <laughs> it got under people's skin in all sorts of Is ways. Is Roger still with us or did he die in prison? Uh, I think he's still in, in prison. prison. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So you've got a lot of influence, if you like, behind you. You've got a lot of um, content, I guess, or story. So when did you decide to write fiction? The PhD was the, yeah, the motivator. Was, it was the PhD was the motivator on on a completely other you know nothing to do with fiction or crime or or anything. It was in a you know media department, but the fiction just started building up, and eventually I had a something that was like a a book manuscript size, and I I sent it out to a couple of people and uh, Minerva, uh, yeah. who were a sort of quite arty publisher at the time in Melbourne. Um, and who was your publisher? Was it Jane? Uh, it was no, the first one was actually uh, Jennifer Byrne. Oh wow! Yes. Yeah, she was the one who picked she... it up and liked the voice. And that's right. She rang me up. I was out, and the plumber was there. Um, uh, my plumber friend Paddy, who sort of <laughs> Irish guy, he did the negotiating for. Me. Oh, Peter <laughs> will be very interested to hear that. And <laughs> so he. <laughs> Did you understand the significance then? Kind of, you know. I'd had a few knockbacks then, and I, of course, I, you yeah. know, I'd, when it's abstract, like you go, oh yeah, knockbacks. Oh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a grown up. I can handle a knockback. But actually, knockbacks are very, <laughs> they're hard to deal with. You know, we yeah. find. So I'd had a few, and I went, oh god, I don't want too much I, of this I, going on. I've got to tell you, and and I've talked about this on this podcast before, and I've interviewed hundreds of authors now. I think it's been over four hundred. I've probably been saying that for over a year, so maybe it's 500. Yeah. But either way, the amount of rejections that people endure. I had one author who kept a spreadsheet and had 100 rejections. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I just don't have the uh, the protection, yeah. <laughs> you know, to be able to put myself out there. I mean, for me, I would be in a heap on the yeah. floor in the corner in the fetal position or yeah. something. Yeah. And well, I got five or six rejections and then the 
and then the gl- glimmer of interest from yeah. uh, from Jennifer Byrne, uh, bless her. And I mentioned it to people. Went, oh man, I'm bleeding here, you know. <laughs> and people went, only six rejections. Ha, ah, nothing, yeah, you know. Nothing. You're Absolute. a weakling. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, nothing. <laughs> Welcome to my world, probably. And they, they yeah. would have had twenty or thirty. Yeah. So you've got the prospect of a book right there. Yeah. I mean, advances for fiction wouldn't have been that high. No, they weren't that high, but. You know, fiction was still selling, and it was. You know, the crime fiction wave was well and truly up well, and running. Well, I think by that's then. the time that we started hearing from um, all sorts of Australian fiction writers. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. It, it, it had become a thing that mm-hmm. uh, Peter Corus, of course, had really, mm-hmm. you know, blazed the mm-hmm. trail there. And uh, so there was Peter Corus, and there was um, oh Kerry Greenwood. Yes, um, yes. Uh, Morel Day. Yes, and Morel Day, I guess, you know, was being noted for sort of writing uh, good stories, very strong Sydney-based stories, but all, not exactly big L literary, but they were they were really well written and they were full of thought and reflection as well. So. And there was Peter Temple as well? Peter Temple had his first book out the same year I had my first book out. Wow. And, yeah. we In fact, we shared the prize, the Ned Kelly Award for Best First Crime Novel. He went on to stellar International Heights, a brilliant writer, fantastic, fantastic writer. Fantastic yeah. writer. Grumpy, but great writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think he was grumpy. But <laughs> yeah. So tell me about that, that, you know, you got your first book published and at that point, where did you see yourself going? So at, I guess parallel to that, you were still playing music? Were you and yeah, I was playing music and I was teaching uh, teaching English as a second language, which is one of those jobs that people sort of on the fringe of the arts often do. They well, were, you need to pay the rent, right? Yeah, yeah, actors and theatre people and filmmakers and musicians. It's a good bunch actually in the yeah. English as a second language world, and there's always work around for that. So yeah, I was doing that, and um, well, I thought you know I'd get the first novel out, and you know next year it'll be a Nobel Prize, and I'll be wealthy <laughs> and celebrated internationally. <laughs> oh, I love your confidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know you have this foolish idea of things but of course the first album first exhibition first book first anything it's just the start okay can i just i i think you need to be less hard on yourself because and you know this like i've been doing this for a very long time and i still can't pick a winner yeah it is really hard to pick the mood i read so many great books that don't go anywhere yeah. and then i read mediocre books that go somewhere <laughs> you think of it about dan brown and the da vinci yeah. code that was of the moment i think if it came out now it'd probably go nowhere yeah. so it it's more than just it, it, the story it's it's the moment in time yeah, as well absolutely yeah and you know, the old thing, no one knows anything, uh, remains as true as it ever was. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you, Peter, how many people come to me for advice. Yeah. What can I say? Keep writing, you know, and good Cross luck. Cross your fingers. Yeah. yeah, good luck. Obviously, you don't need a lot of money because <laughs> it's very hard gig. Yeah. It's a really hard gig. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're feeling really hopeful and you're going to win the Nobel Prize the following year. Yeah. So you keep writing. Yeah, I keep writing and the books sell okay. You know, and a few people really love them. Yeah. And I I decided early on, I thought, well, if the people whose opinion I respect like them, that's pretty good. Oh, absolutely. That that is good. And, I I mean, I knew that, you know, just the way things are, the statistics, that it's always a long shot, like putting out a – hoping for a hit record or a popular movie or anything. Mm. Uh, 
the odds are against you. So don't bank on that happening, but but aim for satisfactions that are achievable. And basically, that's the way I've re- regarded my sort of creative uh, work mm. ever since. Is mm. if if a few people get it, that's great. And if you yeah. get an Actually, an author said this to me early on. He had his first book out just a little bit before me and he'd been a sort of pop star for years. And he said, the thing about it, it's not that you're sort of trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. You just want to be successful enough that you get to do the next thing. That's all you really need. Yeah, really. I think that's great advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really is great advice. And, you know, you just want to put a good story out there. So at what point did you turn your hand to nonfiction? Yeah, well, I got a... um, uh, by the time I had three novels out, I was getting up to 2000, 2001, and they all, you know, I'd really love doing the research for them. I went back for the one set of in course, the 50s, yeah. and I right. just read when, you know, the State Library used to bring out newspapers in great bound leather editions, and you could just turn the pages of a 1950s newspaper. So I spent days and weeks just reading the newspapers from the time, and that found its way into the writing. So I, I got a cold call from a museum in Sydney saying, you know, uh, Justice and Police Museum, um, you know, we, we're aware of you. Would you like to come down and curate an exhibition? We'd like to get outsiders in who don't know anything about museums and curating, but who can, mm. you know, perhaps tell a story well, to come and have a look at what's here and and put together an exhibition. So I did that, and that really alerted me in a new way to... Um, you know, the sort of buzz term is material culture, but things, objects. Mm. And that museum had a lot of, it was the old police crime museum. So they had a lot of sort of guns and mm. bloodied items of clothing from famous crimes. And photographs. And yeah. photographs. And uh, I went, yeah, I could just be happy being here forever. Mm. Just. Looking. In a way, it's kind of like you were enjoying the research, yeah. really. I love the research I do yeah. and, I, and I still do. And I love, you know, going deep into stuff, being immersed in it, finding out and having thoughts about it, maybe correct, maybe not correct, but just thinking about it and then trying to translate, give that to people, give yeah. some, bring something out of the um, treasure yeah. trove, as it were, that people can then approach that's, honest, it's true about the stuff, has insights, but not kind of, uh, I don't know, not in a teacherly way, just show well, and tell. Well, also you know. the genre itself, true crime, has always been, I don't know how to describe it. You'll know what I'm talking about. It's kind of always sat on the trash. Yeah. You know, and not yeah. so, tr- you know what I mean? Like it just, it's a fine line. Do you know, <laughs> I used to work at the Grace Brothers Book Department yes. many, many <laughs> moons ago. I remember. Um, do you remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was um, always, you know, book thieves there and, and then they'd take them and try and flog them on George Street or something. And they would take true crime, like whole sections. And it was the most stolen books yeah. was the true crime. <laughs> yeah. And I always thought that that was a bit... Uh, well, interesting in a way that thieves are, are stealing books about thieves. But anyway, it is a genre that I think really does cross both sides, if you like. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, well, when I started at the museum, there were publishers were on the uh, various committees at, uh, at what is now Sydney Living Museums, was then Historic Houses Trust. And they kind of went, yeah, yeah, crime stories. And they would almost sheepishly 
yes. a figure from a major Australian publisher, admit that, well, true crime was low rent then, exactly as yes. you say. It was, it was a that's slight a, that's embarrassment. That's a great description, low rent. But yeah. it just walked out of the shops, yeah. <laughs> selling and, yes. and thieved as well. Yes. And they were a little bit embarrassed about it. They went, oh, yeah, the public loves this. And, I mean, this goes back to Victorian era mm. and before, of course, mm. and the Newgate mm. calendar. Mm. People have always liked stories of crime mm. and you know, mishap and mayhem. Yeah, so it was something happened in the 2000s. The true crime became a sort of literary thing and then, the you know, the podcasts and it became a sort of higher, more middle-brow kind, yeah, of, kind of enterprise. definitely, But back then... But I even think pre-podcasts, we were really starting to take it more seriously as a genre. Yes, yeah. that uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, of I course, think, yes. turned, turned yeah. the corner a bit on that. But, but there'd always been fantastic writing in yeah. that style. Yeah. Uh, in fact, right back to a century or more ago, uh, judges would sometimes write uh, crime s- stories of their famous cases when they retired, right. and and they'd write them very well. Yeah. yeah. So there was there's always been a, a classier version of the uh, of the form. Okay, so we've got to jump a little bit because we're, yeah. we we will run out of time yeah, yeah, otherwise. Yeah. So suburban noir. What I mean, it's a book about your uncle. Talk to me about how you came to write this story. Yeah, well, I was preparing an exhibition at the Justice and Police Museum. Um, and in fact, you know, my connection there ended up going on quite a while. And, mm. you know, so I backed up to do more work for them. And it was a great relationship and I loved it. But I moved on from sort of I'd been looking at 1920s and 30s artefacts, photos and bits of stuff really fascinating. But then I was looking at the 1950s and 60s uh, crime scene photos and my uncle, who I'd had very little to do with in my life, my father's brother, uh, he died uh, recently and, um, oh, in fact, I tried to, I I rang him up. Had you known that there was a story there? I knew he'd been famous and he'd, he'd been involved in some of the most famous cases of the time, the Graham Thorne kidnapping and the Kingsgrove slasher. But, you know, he lived in a different part of Sydney and yeah. our, our paths didn't really cross. When I did ring him up to ask him about a detail about an exhibition, for an exhibition I was working on, uh, where I had a newspaper report and he'd been one of the detectives on the case, he told me over the phone, he went, oh, no, no, I, I wasn't involved in that. I went, oh, you know, I had the newspaper in front yeah. of me. I said, but it says you and Jack Bateman, who was a well-known detective, you went, oh, no, I worked with Bateman, but no, no, I wasn't involved in that matter. I, I let it go, actually, and and then he died a little bit afterwards. And at the funeral, I mentioned that to his son, who went, oh, well, you know, he wasn't in a great way and he probably forgot. And had you spoken to me first, I would have, yeah, you know, yeah. ushered that through. I went, oh, well, I understand. My father was in a similar state at that time. So yeah. it was it was a little bit late. But then uh, the son just handed me his papers a couple of years later and said, oh, you know, oh, make wow. of them what you will. And there were photos and documents and files. What a generous files. gift, yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was very kind of the family. To keep your father's legacy going. To yeah. do that, yeah. And uh, really then I spent 10 years trying to make sense of it. A lot of it you know, is mysterious because he used it. He gave a lot of talks to recruits and public talks. He was a pretty good public speaker in his own retirement, a popular public speaker. So he knew what everything meant. He didn't need to make notes or annotations. So, you know, have these photos or these 
documents or just scraps of paper or, you know, there's things like an envelope with a few little tiny wood shavings in it and an address written on it in Bankstown in Sydney. Well, I found out later on that was a murder case where the guy had leave it open the back door to kill mm-hmm. to, to kill a child inside the house, actually. Uh, awful case. But, uh, yeah, so there's odd little... I mean, it's almost like a museum exercise in a way. There are these funny little things mm-hmm. and documents that are potentially very full of story and relate relate intimately to um, to important events, big things mm. that happened. And uh, I have to try to work out what that connection is. Mm. Okay, so this is a big question for, um, for the ending, but I'd like to hear your view on this. How do you think that the past crimes that make up a, a country, make up a city, make up who we are, how do, how do you see that in everything that you've written and researched is it why we've ended up here, where we are? It's really central. You know, this is what I love about crime. Like, you know, one of these things I like saying is that sometimes the least interesting thing about a crime case is the crime itself. It's yeah. everything else and all the the feelings, the tensions, the desires, the resentments. Once the crime happens, it really lays bare all this stuff that was already present yeah. generally but not really manifest, not really out in the world. Somebody finally snaps and does the thing and then in court they say why or maybe they say why or they have some reason and all this stuff comes out into the open that previously wasn't. So in a way, yeah, I think crime does make place. It's like every culture in the world seems to make up stories and myths and legends about transgression so in some sort of like bogus anthropological way here, if yeah. you'll pardon me, you know, they it transgression, it's like setting the limits. What will we accept and what won't we? And that's always fluctuating. Yeah. The stuff I've been looking at for the 50s and 60s, I mean, I knew this already, but how much energy was put in then to policing gender, masculinity, and and this insanely homophobic, misogynistic, mm. to us, to, to a modern mm. sensibility, outlook. Now, those people back then, the cops in the 50s and 60s, thought they were doing the right thing to mm. to mm. bash, you know, homosexual yeah. males and to, yeah. and to absolutely terrorise gender, what we now regard as gender-fluid people. Mm. Weren't hurting anyone, but they it's, thought they had yeah. to do it and that they would do it. So that's things like that are really interesting, mm. that just the way crime... And policing, it just lays bare so much that's really going on. And to revisit that, it's it's nearly always fascinating mm. and surprising. I like that. Crime makes place. I don't know if I've heard that before. Peter Doyle, so wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.